Provan. So I'm Keith Whittington. I'm the acting director of the James Madison Program, American Ideals and Institutions uh, for the year. And I'd like to uh, welcome you to what is our third and final presentation in this year's uh, Charles E. Test, MD, Distinguished Visiting Scholars uh, Seminar. Um, this, as in all of our sessions this year, have been focused on religious liberty. Uh, this particular lecture uh, will focus on the theological claim. Um, and if you've been with us for the past month, as we've uh, had the earlier two uh, lectures in this series, you'll know uh, that our speaker for the year um, is Professor David Novak, who holds the J. Richard and Dorothy Schiff Chair of Jewish Studies as Professor of the Study of Religion and Professor of Philosophy uh, at the University of Toronto. Um, he's also a member of the University College and of the Joint Center of Bioethics. Um, Professor Novak uh, received his uh, rabbinical diploma um, from the Jewish Theological Seminary of America and his PhD in philosophy from Georgetown uh, University. Uh, he's also the founder, vice president, and coordinator of the Jewish Law Panel of the Union of Traditional Judaism and is a faculty member of the Institute of Traditional Judaism uh, in Teaneck, uh, New Jersey, uh, a ways from uh, the University of Toronto, but uh, close to here. Um, so with that, uh, I hope you will help me uh, welcome Professor Novak. Thank you. Let's see. Once again, I've divided this lecture into several parts, and I will read the topic headings just to, to give myself and you as well a, a catch your breath. Part one is entitled Liberty and Authoritarianism. Uh, there's a certain paradox when members of religious communities claim liberty in a secular society. The paradox becomes even more acute when the claim for religious liberty is philosophically grounded as a right with which one is endowed by God, as I tried to point out in the last lecture. The paradox is that the more traditional a religious community is, which means the more it sees itself being under divine authority, the less liberty its members seem to have within the confines of that community itself. Many people would agree with Spinoza, a man who himself left the confines of a traditional religious community, that religion requires obedience whereas philosophy requires freedom of thought, libertas philosophandi. So if a political claim to religious liberty, the subject of my first lecture, is grounded in a philosophical claim to religious liberty, uh, the subject of my second lecture, how can one possibly look for a genuine claim to religious liberty in theology of all places? How can one look for true liberty in a place where lit little liberty seems to be found, even if any at all? And if claims are rights, didn't rights become a central philosophical and political issue at the time in Western history when in the 18th century Europeans and Americans were proclaiming freedom of religion to be largely freedom from religion? Didn't the philosophies of the Enlightenment proclaim rights in place of the duties demanded by the Ancien Regime, one of whose four estates was the church? And wasn't the displacement of the church by the French Revolution even more radical than its displacement of the crown? Moreover, lest one think that an antinomy between liberty and authority is an uniquely Christian problem or a political problem with Christianity, in a famously influential 1987 article entitled Obligation, a Jewish Jur Jurisprudence of the Social Order, the late Yale law professor Robert Cover argued that Judaism, with its emphasis on duty, chova, provides a needed antidote to the overemphasis of rights in liberal democracies. Although, as we have seen in the previous lecture, rights and liberties are not interchangeable terms, nonetheless, they are very closely connected. Yet, despite the obvious paradox of what seems to be 
authority-based community, what seem to be authority-based communities making political and even philosophical claims on secular society, members of these communities do make such claims. And if the recent national election be any indication of political success, then the great support that President Bush received from traditional Protestants, Catholics, and Jews, support that many have seen to be at the key factor in his electoral victory, must be interpreted as being the way members of these traditional communities have now chosen to exercise their right to religious liberty. The political exercise of that right is the claim religious people make on society as a whole to adhere to certain moral norms they regard to be universally binding on all people. Nevertheless, the question remains whether these claims to religious liberty are nothing but political ploys, which are only being employed because rights talk is the only talk with which one can make a cogent claim in a secular society, even a claim to religious liberty. And that question still remains even when members of religious communities make philosophical arguments to justify their political claims. To many of those, these philosophical arguments seem to be nothing but rationalizations. In other words, these religious claims for liberty could be seen as a device for drawing attention away from the essentially illiberal or anti-liberal life that is lived within the religious community itself. Can one ask from others what one is unprepared to give to one's own? When secularists point out this paradox, they are well advised to present it as an example of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is a term with a religious history. Therefore, using it against public religion should get the attention of religious people quicker than the use of some more secular term. Accordingly, aren't religious people being hypocritical when they proclaim liberty for religion in the outside world but simultaneously exercise more and more authority at home? in such activities as heresy hunts and calls for excommunication? Isn't it quite incoherent to make two sets of claims, one at home and another abroad, that basically contradict each other? How can liberty be advocated in one place, yet repressed in another by the very same people? Indeed, religious people must discover a theological validation of religious liberty from within their religious tradition itself, if for no other reason than to indicate that their, that their pursuit of religious liberty is not merely like the statements of certain politicians who speak in one way to the world at large and an altogether opposite way to the folks back home. Surely religious people should not regard their political presence in the world to be in essence a conspiracy any more than they should regard their employment of philosophy to be mere apologetics. But that requires that we once again distinguish theology from philosophy, let alone distinguish theology from political rhetoric. Religious people must look to theology for their deepest reason, since for them, theology goes all the way down, to borrow a phrase of Richard Rorty. Two, theology and philosophy. Theology theorizes about the sacred history, Heilsgeschichte, of a singular community. By singular community, I mean a community who does not regard itself to be part of a larger social whole, and who regards its singularity to be due to its unique relationship with God. That relationship with God and the relationship among the members of the community so related to God is historical. It is marked by temporal events of divine human encounter. Such a community then is grounded in revelation and extends itself historically by tradition as the transmission, traditio, and development of what God has revealed to the community in the events of revelation. Theological reflection on religious liberty is one important moral issue facing that community should locate religious liberty within the sacred history of that community itself. But such reflection can only be done authentically by a thinker who is a willing part of that community. The theologian, then, must be personally committed to the object of his or her theological concern 
in a way that a philosopher need not be concerned with the object of his or her philosophical concern, at least prima facie. Furthermore, whereas philosophy can intend universal human nature, such as, as it is heretofore, theology cannot intend any such universality, at least heretofore. Theology then can only theorize about the sacred history of one community among others in the world. A theology of a history can only aspire to be the theology of universal history per se, histoire même, as the French would say, when there will be true universal history at the end time, the eschaton, when God will redeem the entire world and end the world's estrangement from God. Nevertheless, since that end time is at present known to God alone, only God can now theorize about it. Theology at present, anyway, can only presume its existential superiority over any philosophy by asserting that the concrete singularity of its object of concern has more content to offer human beings in their present lives, and that it has offered that content to them in the past as it will offer that content to them in the foreseeable future. The abstract universality any philosophy could propose is just too culturally thin to be existentially satisfying, to borrow a term made famous by the cultural anthropologist Clifford Gertz. And when the concrete singularity of theology's concern finally becomes universal at the end time, at this final point, theology and philosophy will become one, as all creation will become one, in true imitation of the oneness of the creator God. Until that time, though, the claims of theology and the claims of philosophy will remain different, the one more concrete, the other more abstract. But for some of us who do not consider the claims of theology and the claims of philosophy to be mutually exclusive, these two different claims ought not and therefore cannot be contradictory. When these claims are contradictory, one or both of the claims, the theological and or the philosophical, has been made badly. Furthermore, as we've seen in the previous lecture, whereas a philosophical claim of religious liberty can logically undergird a political claim of religious liberty, because both of them can be made cogently in the world to the world, theological claims of religious liberty can only be cogently made within one's own traditional community. It is a mistake to see the logical connection that obtains between philosophy and secular politics to obtain between theology and secular politics too. Unlike philosophy, theology is only in the world, not of the world. At most, theological claims of religious liberty can make it possible for a theologian to make philosophical and political claims of religious liberty when speaking in public without contradicting what must be, for a theologian, his or her primary authority. In fact, it is rather easy to say that a religious tradition does not explicitly prohibit and thus implicitly permits its adherence to pursue religious liberty in a secular society. Surely no such prohibition could even be inferred once we learn that a religious tradition permits its adherence to participate in a secular, multicultural society in good faith, although it's debated in every religious tradition. But if it allows it, then it can be done. But can we do more than just simply show an absence of contradiction between theology and philosophy on this question of the pursuit of religious liberty? Is it only a conditio sine qua non? Can we do more than that? Can we discover a positive model, not a strictly logical conditio per quam to be sure, can we discover a positive model which might well be imitated with philosophical persuasion and political profit by analogy? But where can we find any such positive model when we look at the religious data themselves, especially theologically? Three, where is religious liberty to be found theologically? When it comes to theologizing about religious liberty within a religious tradition, we have noted that outsiders, especially secularists who place themselves outside any and all religious traditions, do not see enough or indeed any religious liberty there at all. 
But truth be told, even many of those within a religious tradition like Judaism do not see very much or any religious liberty there either, which for those within the tradition is here, not there. So as a Jewish theologian who is committed to religious liberty as a political and a philosophical claim, the subjects of the two previous lectures, I must find for myself and for those of you with whom I converse, religious liberty within my own Judaism, Judaism being my commitment, not my possession or invention. And I must find that religious liberty as both fact and norm. In other words, I must now find religious liberty within the tradition having both past precedent, precedent and a future trajectory. If I can't do that, then my theological commitment is at loggerheads with my philosophical concerns and my political interests, since in these two areas I have surely found religious liberty as both fact and norm. But living such a schizoid life can only result in existential incoherence, if not perhaps madness, something any intelligent person should avoid at all costs. Uh, let us now at long last get to the sacred history of which theology, in my case Jewish theology, speaks with integrity. Yet we needed to first analyze the relation of theology to philosophy and politics, lest theology be seen as an escape from ordinary human thought and action, rather than a true deepening of them. Four, from slavery to freedom. The central event of the sacred history of the Jews is Exodus Sinai. That is the seven-week period beginning with God's taking his people out of Egyptian slavery and culminating with God giving his law, Torah, to this people assembled at the foot of Mount Sinai. But was there any liberty involved in that eventful experience? Was there any liberty then and there other than God's creative liberty to free this people from slavery or not, and God's creative liberty to reveal his law to this people or not? Speaking long after the Exodus, the prophet Jeremiah says about that event in the name of God, quote, I grabbed them by the hand, in order to bring them out of Egypt, Jeremiah 31, 31. In other words, as we would say today, God brought Israel out of Egypt kicking and screaming. As such, we can infer from this that had the people the real liberty to choose whether to stay in Egypt or leave Egypt, they would have most likely stayed there. Life in Egypt may have been hard, but it was also comfortable and secure. This explains why the people immediately rebelled against God's covenant and its law. When Jeremiah says in the next phrase, quote, they violated my covenant so that I had to overpower them, he probably had in mind the sin of the golden calf, which came on the heels of the Sinaitic revelation. So if liberation means going from the power of one master to that of another, then what real difference does this liberation make for those being liberated? Isn't this liberation empty in the way Marxists speak of empty rights, which are rights the exercise of which is not an expression of any real power on the part of those exercising them? God had to force his people into the covenant, not trusting them with any real freedom of choice. Thus, it seems God had to overcome the resistance of the people coercively with his greater power, almost as much as God had to overcome the resistance of Pharaoh. Perhaps the people felt that they were mere pawns in a power struggle between the king of Israel and the king of Egypt. Perhaps the people felt that neither God nor Pharaoh truly had what is good for the people at heart. Power can be forced on one by making one accept its decrees. But can one accept decrees to be good for one without being persuaded? Can acceptance of what is good be coerced? And by power, I mean political power, which can only be exercised by persons, whether human or even divine. When it comes to the people's reception of God's law at Mount Sinai, the situation doesn't seem to be any more liberal. 
So even when Scripture reports that the people at Sinai said, quote, all that the Lord has spoken we shall do and we shall hear, Exodus 24-7, how much of a real choice did they have? Was there any probability of their doing otherwise under those circumstances? Where could they have fled with the wilderness at their backs and burning Mount Sinai in their face? A prominent view in the Talmud is that the people had no real choice. And the ensuing discussion of this view in the Talmud immediately recognizes the theological problem posed thereby. This view presents itself through an ingenious reading of the scriptural narrative of Sinaitic revelation, presuming that the people were not just, quote, standing at the foot of the mountain, Exodus 19.17, but they were standing under the mountain, the Tachtit Ahar. Now, how does one possibly stand under a mountain? Well, the people are viewed as standing under a mountain because God held it over their heads, telling them that if they do not accept his Torah right now, quote, there will be your grave. Well, such an immediate choice between life and death with no time for deliberation of the two options and no time to try to negotiate some third option. Such a choice seems to lack what Aristotle, for example, thought is necessary for a morally respectable decision. To be or not to be, which is what this choice God placed before the people, sounds great in the mouth of Hamlet. But Shakespeare may well have put such a quote in the mouth of this procrastinating adolescent prince of Denmark, ironically. After all, in the end, Hamlet cannot come to any practical decision at all. The ultimate gravity of the decision seems to have caused moral paralysis in poor Hamlet. Faced with such an immediate life-or-death situation, who would have the leisure for moral deliberation so that he or she could come to a truly rational decision? Yet even without help from Aristotle and Shakespeare, the Talmud itself records its own moral complaint about the seeming denial of true human liberty. And it is a moral complaint made against God himself, that is, God himself as lawgiver. Thus, another rabbi complains that this theologically imaginative proposal of what actually occurred at the time of God's giving and Israel's receiving of the Torah is morally problematic, irrespective of whether it is actually accurate or not. He calls this a great indictment of the Torah. In concluding the discussion of this story and the great moral dilemma it raises, a third rabbi suggests as a way out of this moral dilemma that during the people's exile from their own land after the destruction of the first temple in 586 BC, that the Jewish people, now a mere two-tribe remnant of the original ten tribes of Israel, freely confirmed in exile what they had originally accepted under duress in the wilderness. But why could the people have freely accepted in Egypt, Babylonian exile what had to be forced upon them at Mount Sinai? The answer might be that unlike their situation in the wilderness when their only choice was between life and death, in the exile, they did have a choice between two ways of life rather than a choice of life or death. The city of Babylon offered them options not available in the wilderness, where just staying alive took all their time and energy. In Babylonia, the people could easily assimilate into the comfortable political, economic, and cultural milieu there, something the other tribes, the ten lost tribes of Israel, seemed to have successfully accomplished. Or they could follow Ezra and Nehemiah back to the land of Israel. Later commentators suggest that the miracle of Jewish survival and exile might well be the reason why the people decided that their survival was due to their ability to live according to the Torah freely. Like all ability, this was seemed to be a good gift from God, a gift to which the people could truly respond with the greatest of all freedoms, the freedom to love God responsibly and responsibly. A phenomenology of the experience of being commanded shows that being commanded presupposes genuine freedom of choice as its precondition point made by the greatest of the medieval jurists and theologians, Rabbi Moses Maimonides, uh, the 800th anniversary of his death is being celebrated around the world this year. 
What the Jewish people is voluntarily returning to would not only be their ancestral homeland, but much more importantly, they would be returning to the Torah as their national constitution. Even when the people enjoyed national sovereignty during the days of the First Temple, the written Torah does not seem to have functioned as the ultimate national authority, an ultimate authority the Torah only seems to have granted, had gained with the voluntary return to Shuvah, the Jewish people, under the leadership of Ezra the scribe, who some have also taken to be the last of the prophets. Moreover, this free reacceptance of the Torah outside the borders of the land of Israel meant that even those Jews who chose not to return to the land by remaining in the diaspora, the Gola of Babylonia, or elsewhere for that matter, even those Jews are considered to be part of the national covenant, the Brit, and its law, the Torah. Thus, the theological difference between Israeli and non-Israeli Jews to this very day is a difference of degree, not one of kind. Israeli Jews are able to keep more of the commandments, mitzvot of the Torah. Non-Israeli Jews are able to keep less of the commandments of the Torah. Nevertheless, short of the coming of the Messiah, even Israeli Jews cannot keep all of the commandments, like those pertaining to the temple, because there is no temple. And even non-Israeli diaspora Jews cannot regard themselves to be bound by none of the commandments. All Jews are equally members of the same covenant in principle, and in fact, all Jews who voluntarily take upon themselves the yoke of the commandments, the Ol Mitzvot, function equally as active members of the same covenant, irrespective of where they've chosen to live. One could well ask, why do the people first have to have the law forced upon them rather than having it persuasively offered to them later to freely accept or reject, as was the case subsequently, as we have just seen? The answer might be that people, the people could not very well choose a law of whose rule they had no previous experience. In other words, to use the language of moral psychology, isn't our most basic moral choice the choice to reconfirm or deny a law that we could not have freely accepted or rejected in childhood. And even when we reject the morality of our childhood, do we not inevitably accept another morality coming from someone else's childhood? Another, that's another tradition. Aristotle was no doubt correct when he insisted that ethical theory, which includes the criteria of moral deliberation and choice, cannot be taught to those too young to have had sufficient moral experience. And indeed, even when proposing his idea of moral autonomy, Kant insisted that he was only rationally reconfirming moral wisdom as traditionally received. Even Kant did not presume to say that human beings substantially create their own morality de novo. How much more so is this true then for those of us who do not propose autonomy as even the formal basis of morality? By deciding to reconstitute themselves to be a covenanted nation governed according to the divine law revealed in the Torah, the Jewish people exercised religious liberty collectively. Even though God and Israel are not equal partners in the covenant, as would be the case were the covenant a contract, which it is not, nonetheless the Jewish people's voluntary reacceptance, reconfirmation of the covenant and its law enabled the covenant to be politically effective in a way it had not been effective in the days of the first temple. During that earlier period, the chief efforts of the prophets had been to wean the people away from following the idolatrous ways of their pagan neighbors. There seemed to be little energy or opportunity left to govern the people according to the more specific precepts of the Torah then. But now with the radically different cultural and political situation of the people after their voluntary return to the land of Israel from Babylon, the scribal and rabbinic successors of the earlier prophets were able to allow the voluntary reacceptance of the Torah by the people to make a practical uh, difference. The more specific and mundane moral problems that concern law could get fuller attention then. I would now like to show you how the voluntary reacceptance reconfirmation of the Torah by the Jewish people 
functioned as an exercise of religious liberty at the collective level and at the individual level. Five, religious liberty as a collective right. My example of religious liberty as a collective right comes from the period of the formation of the Talmud, roughly between the first and fifth centuries. Nevertheless, although the origins of this right are ancient, its exercise has not ceased up until the present day and is hoped into the foreseeable future. Religious liberty was exercised then, and now, to a certain extent, by innovative reinterpretation of scriptural law and by innovative supplementations to that law. In both cases, a learned elite, as well as the populace, had to be persuaded to freely accept what had been newly reinterpreted and what had been newly legislated. As for God's explicit approval, in the absence of prophecy, the community will have to wait for the divine approval, that a divine approval from the Messiah or Elijah, the messianic advancement. Nevertheless, the exercise of that exegetical and legislative liberty did not have to wait for the coming of the Messiah. That liberty very much functions today in traditional Jewish communities who voluntarily regard themselves to be the subject to the governance of the law, the halakha. Thus, although its beginnings are ancient and its ultimate validation is eschatological, the free renunciation of the law and the free submission to the law as normative, and not just as past fact or future hope, that normative Judaism is alive and well in the growing traditional Jewish community. By traditional community, I mean those Jews who accept scriptural revelation as truth and who accept the authority of Jewish law as it has evolved up until the present day. Whether engaged in reinterpretation or whether engaged in supplementary legislation, rabbis, in an atmosphere of considerable discursive freedom, attempt to persuade each other of what the correct interpretation or supplementation of the law is to be. There is moreover considerable freedom in the range of hermeneutical methods and the types of arguments that may be employed in this discursive context, a context like what the contemporary German philosopher Jürgen Habermas calls an ideal speech situation. Furthermore, from the Talmudic text, we see that this whole process of, of normative innovation is not just the exercise of liberty by and within a learned elite, a rabbinical oligarchy, even though this elite has been remarkably free of exclusions due to class or ancestry. Rather, in order to be intellectually cogent, let alone politically effective, this whole exegetical and legislative process has had to take popular usage, minhag, into immediate and continual consideration. Thus, by any, thus, any seemingly radical interpretation of law on the books must be a formulation of what the people have already freely been practicing informally. To be sure, this popular consensus was not determined by anything like a formal plebiscite like we have today in popular elections. Rather, this consensus was determined by a sense of overall popular acceptance, which minimally might be nothing more than the absence of any real opposition to a particular ruling. But more often than not, an innovative ruling did require explicit agreement of a majority, and that majority had to be more than 51%. In the absence of such free popular consensus, the law remains at the level of sorry decisis. The status quo, then, can only be overcome by something akin to what Catholics have liked to call consensus fidelium, the agreement of most of the faithful. In the absence of the means of physical or political coercion, that consensus would seem to require reasoned persuasion to be morally effective. It must be presented and accepted as a desideratum. Now, this extends 
not only to law that was made by interpreting text, but also law that was proposed by legislation, what in the rabbinic traditions are called takanot. And this process of legislation involves greater intellectual freedom, the freedom to, because it's the freedom to speculate which can explore more options than textual interpretation alone, because it's not tied, it has to relate to the text, but it's not tied to the text so closely. This is because legislative proposal, when intelligently conducted, requires a bold discovery of what the ends of the law are. And these ends are frequently implicit rather than explicit in the text of scripture itself. Although a theological enterprise, one can see much philosophical affinity here in this speculation about ends. It is teleology. And indeed, the most astute of the rabbinic minds would probably agree with Aristotle that teleology constitutes thinking at its highest point. Indeed, Maimonides, greatest of the medieval jurist theologians, made much use of Aristotelian logic in its categories. And rabbinic legislation must also, much more so than rabbinic exegesis, must recognize the liberty of the present community to accept or reject what it proposes to be praxis. This greater requirement to recognize popular liberty can be seen in a pivotal principle of rabbinic legislation. No rule is to be made, en goes ring unless the majority of the members of the community, robot sibor, are prepared to live by it. No rules to be made unless the majority of the members of the community are prepared to live by it. Here again, we need to remember that this is determined by an informal but overwhelmingly popular consensus, not the arithmetic one vote more than 50% that formally determines who or what wins in a popular election. But how do we know that this majority actually obtains? We know that when we see what the rabbis proposed has indeed been put into practice among a vast number of people, Yisrael. The question, though, is whether the free will of this popular majority determines what the law is to be in and for a later generation. As far as the rabbis who made the law are concerned, at least in principle, a later rabbinic body, Bet Din, can overturn the legislative decision of an earlier rabbinic body, although it rarely does it. Nevertheless, in the absence of a Jewish Supreme Court, that procedure, de jure, is almost impossible to explicitly utilize de facto. Instead, radical judicial reinterpretation is what is usually had to suffice for repeal de facto, but it's often tortured in its logic. However, what about the consent of the people? Is the freedom of the people and the present effectively curtailed, in fact vetoed, by a past majority's free decision? Some have answered yes to this question. Maimonides seemed to have answered no. He suggested that if a practice decided upon by a previous majority has now fallen into disuse by the present majority of the people, then this practical omission, this sitting and doing nothing, Shea Bialta says, the Talmud puts it elsewhere, is de facto repeal of the earlier rabbi-made law. Here, a formal repeal by a rabbinical body does not seem to be required to alleviate the present generation of any sin of omission. By the way, such would not be the case, however, where there's been practical omission of a scriptural law. I mean, for example, Jews start eating pork, for example. In this case, the rabbis are prepared to admonish the people to return to the law they themselves have. The people themselves have neglected. Accordingly, but here, when it comes to rabbi-made law, the rabbis may leave the people alone, halachlem l'Israel, as Talmud puts it, namely to leave the people be in what they have chosen not to practice. In other words, the people may choose to disassociate themselves from an earlier human-made ruling, something they surely may not do with natural law or with directly divinely revealed law. 
I would like to suggest that this is a prime example of the theological sanction of the collective exercise of religious liberty. Nevertheless, since the dawn of modernity, we usually designate religious liberty to be an individual's right. So we need to find an example of where the tradition recognized such an individual right, whether de jure or even only de facto. Six, religious liberty as an individual right. My example of religious liberty as an individual right comes from the Middle Ages. But like the collective right discussed above, the exercise of this right too extends, too extends far beyond the period in which it came to the fore in Jewish thinking and practice. Like the previously noted collective right, this individual right is still an option for Jews today. The greatest problem facing medieval Jewish communities was the ever-present threat of apostasy, shmad. Being a small, vulnerable minority, whether in Christian societies or in Muslim societies, there was always the danger of the community, to the community that some of its members would choose to renounce the community and formally identify with the majority religion and culture. This was especially an acute danger since both Christianity and Islam, mutatis mutandis, were actively proselytizing Jews. To be sure, there were times when Jews were forced to convert to Christianity or Islam, even though canon law prohibits forcing someone to convert to Christianity, and even though the choice of Islam or the sword was only supposed to be made to pagans, not to Jews or to Christians. Nevertheless, fanatical Christian or Muslim groups, unable to tolerate any religious or cultural difference in their midst from time to time, gave Jews the choice of conversion or death. This was especially so in Christendom during the First Crusade in the 10th century. This time, entire Jewish communities in the Rhineland chose death, sometimes even by their own hand, rather than abandon Judaism by converting to Christianity. Theirs was the choice of martyrdom, what Jewish tradition calls sacrificing one's life for the sanctity of the divine name, Kiddush Hashem. And although a Jew is supposed to choose death over forced conversion, the tradition was extremely reticent to condemn those not having the courage to properly make that awful choice. That reticence translated into extreme leniency in welcoming back to the community those Jewish converts who were eventually able to escape their religious captors and come back home. In ordinary matters of law, Judas, Jewish tradition regards acts committed under duress, ones, not to be culpable after the fact, patur. Such acts are considered to be accidents beyond normal human control. The duty of martyrdom is an exception to this rule since the would-be martyr does have a choice before the fact however awful that choice is. As such, the would-be martyr is unlike the victim of an accident whose unfortunate circumstances led to his or her becoming an inadvertent instrument of harm to another person or another person's property. The choice of apostasy, on the other hand, involves mortal harm to one's own soul. Nevertheless, medieval apostasy, more often than not, was a choice made under less gruesome circumstances. There were Jews who were able to make a free decision to convert to either Christianity or Islam, and they were able to do so with the requisite deliberation that is available to one when, so to speak, a knife is not at one's throat. Such persons were able to weigh their options and make a choice that was not one of physical life or death. Accordingly, their culpability was greater than those terrified into apostasy. Whether these willing apostates chose to abandon Judaism because they actually believed the theological claims of the other, that the other, of the other religion trumped those of Judaism, especially for the sake of the world to come, or whether they chose to abandon the Jewish people because the political status of being a Christian or a Muslim was more attractive in this world, that motivation surely varies from case to case. And in the end, the true reason for that choice is known only to the person who made that choice and to God who judges that choice as God judges all of our choices. As it says in 1 Samuel 16:7, humans see only appearances, but God sees the heart. 
This, however, only tells us about the problem of the individual Jewish apostate and the problem Jews believe God has with him or her. It does not tell us about the problem the Jewish community has with this kind of person. The community is the third component of the covenant between God and Israel. One can see the covenant as being the interaction between God, individual Jews, and the Jewish community. So how is the Jewish community itself to deal with the choice of one of its members to leave Judaism and the Jewish people for another theological political identity in the world? And this question touches upon the prior theological question. How much liberty is involved in one's becoming a Jew? Hence, we have the opposite theological question. Is there any liberty to cease being a Jew by becoming someone else? Now, when looking at the event of Exodus Sinai, the founding event of the covenant between God and Israel, which much later became known as Judaism, we have now seen that the original status of the Jews as God's covenant people was forced upon them. The people themselves originally became Israel involuntarily. For individual Jews, this means that their being born Jewish determines their Jewish status from the moment of their death, until the moment of their death. And what could be more involuntary than one's birth and who one's parents are? According to Jewish tradition, though, certain Jews who have freely and publicly rejected basic Jewish dogma, like that of the revelation of the Torah as God's law, will be excluded from eschatological Israel. They will lose their portion in the world to come, which is to be populated by all, that is, most of Israel, and along with the righteous of the nations of the world, who are those Gentiles who have responded to God's law as it has been revealed to them in the world. Now, to be sure, Jews are not being hypocritical by protesting when Jews are forced to convert to some other religion, since Jewish law judges a forced conversion to Judaism to be invalid. Even non-Jewish infants adopted by Jews and converted to Judaism in childhood have the right to renounce what was done on their behalf when they reach adulthood. Nevertheless, even though the decision of a Gentile to convert to Judaism has to be voluntary, a Jewish court is under no obligation to automatically accept Kabbalah, such a willing candidate for conversion, Gerut. In other words, the free choice of a Gentile to convert to Judaism is a necessary but not sufficient condition of his or her becoming a Jew. In rabbinic literature, one does not convert Mitkayer by himself to Judaism. Instead, one is converted, passive. One is converted to Judaism, Mitkayer, by the community. It is like one being born rather than giving birth to oneself. In essence, then, a convert to Judaism is as much elected into the covenant as is a native-born Jew. Yet the requirement of free choice on the part of any Gentile to present himself or herself as a candidate for conversion is a good example of the right to religious liberty being recognized by the Jewish tradition, at least as far as it is the right of any Gentile to choose whatever religion he or she wants to follow. There's a question, of course, whether the Jewish tradition recognizes the right of any Gentile to follow no religion. That's another question. The real question, though, is whether there's any official Jewish recognition of the right of a Jew to leave Judaism and the Jewish people for some other identity in the world. Can a Jew leave Judaism for a Gentile community like a Gentile can leave his or her Gentile community for Judaism? If the answer to this question is no, then we have the great irony of Judaism recognizing that Gentiles have greater rights to religious liberty than Jews have. Already in the Talmud, it is recognized that once a Gentile has been converted to Judaism, the fact of that conversion is irrevocable. The conversion is irrevocable even were the new convert to revert to his or her Gentile religion immediately following the completion of the requisite rites of conversion, Giyur. But what about native-born Jews? One could say that since conversion presupposes there are already native-born Jews to accept the convert into their community, 
that if a convert may not become a Gentile again, surely a native-born Jew may not become a Gentile ever, since he or she is more originally Jewish than any convert. But on the other end, one could say that since a convert should be required to live up to the unconditional commitment made by, made by the act of being converted to Judaism willingly, why should a native-born Jew not have the same right as a Gentile to renounce an identity forced upon him or her by the involuntary event of birth? Although neither argument is actually proposed in the classical source, Jewish sources, as far as I know, these arguments could have well been made in the great debate about whether one can or cannot convert out of Judaism. This debate was very much in the air for a period of time stretching from the 5th century to the 11th century. Some authorities ruled that one could leave Judaism just as one could be expelled from the Jewish people. And in this question, they were close to the position of Islam regarding Muslims. As you can be thrown out of the Ummah. An opinion that could well have been influenced by the fact that these authorities lived in Islamic societies. I don't say cause, but influence. Other authorities ruled that once a Jew, always a Jew. In this opinion, these authorities were close to the position of Christianity that baptism is indelible, since, and hence excommunication only deprives a Christian heretic of the privilege of communion with the church, not that he or she is denied his or her identity as a Christian. This opinion could have well been influenced, not caused, but influenced by the fact that these Jewish authorities who held that opinion lived in Christian Europe. It requires more historical examination, but it suggests that. For almost all Jews, this question of whether you can convert out of Judaism or not was resolved in the 11th century by the great French Jewish exegete and jurist Rashi, who lived during the First Crusade. In a responsum on the subject of Jewish apostasy, Rashi invoked a Talmudic dictum, which is, even when a Jew has sinned, he or she is still a Jew. Now, even though the original meaning of this dictum might have been a polemic against Christian supersessionism, which asserts that God permanently rejected the Jewish people from the status of being elected Israel, which is debated among Christian theologians to this day, Rashi interprets the word Israel not to refer to collective Jewish, to collective Jewish people, but to individual Jews. Even for the worst sin possible, the sin of apostasy, that apostate, Mumar Mushumad, is still considered to be a Jew, at least while he or she is still alive in this world. Apostasy is akin to idolatry in that both are called strange worship, avodazarah. This would seem to deny any recognition of a Jew being able, that is having the liberty, to leave Judaism and the Jewish people. I might add that the current situation of some Jews who become Christians but who still want to be part of the Jewish people that poses an entirely different question than the one faced by Rashi and his contemporaries. Now this lack of what we might call exit liberty is, of course, the conclusion one must draw when looking at Rashi's authoritative ruling, de jure. Here again, this ruling is authoritative because of its popular acceptance. However, how did this ruling play out in fact? I submit that in fact, if not in principle, Jewish authorities did recognize the right of a Jew to leave Judaism and the Jewish people. How? They simply let the apostate leave and did nothing little or nothing, to force him or her to come back to Judaism and the Jewish people. To be sure, any active Jewish campaign to bring apostates back home could be quite dangerous in medieval time, in medieval Christian and Muslim societies, where Jews were often prohibited from accepting converts from Christianity or Islam, much less proselytizing Christians or Muslims, even though there is historical evidence that both activities were done by Jews covertly. Jews could be converted by others, but they could not convert others, even if these others had lived as Jews previously. Double standards like this help explain why Jews were so enthusiastic about the end of Christendom in, in, in Europe, that is Christian political rule. 
Nevertheless, even when Jews had the opportunity to bring apostates back, they usually chose not to do so. Thus, for example, the Jewish community had a solemn obligation to redeem Jews sold into slavery so that these unfortunates not be lost to the Jewish people. But that obligation does not extend to Jewish apostates. Here it seems that the community felt no responsibility for Jews who did not want to remain Jews. If some Jews want to be Gentiles, then let their new community assume responsibility for their welfare. Jews, by the way, have felt an obligation, though, to rescue Jewish children raised as Gentiles when these children were too young to have the power of consent. This became an urgent obligation after the Holocaust in cases of Jewish children raised as Gentiles in order to save them from Nazi, the Nazi murderers. And here I might add, Jews have another reason to respect, even thank, the former Archbishop of Krakow, Karol Wojtyla, now Pope John Paul II, for his help in returning some of these Jewish children, raised as Gentiles during World War II, back to their Jewish parents. What a significant and no doubt theologically motivated recognition of the right to religious liberty of members of another community. There are many other such examples of where Jewish apostates were treated as if they were Gentiles. The most important difference between these apostates and Gentiles is that if an apostate wants to return, to Judaism and the Jewish people, the community is obligated to reaccept him or her with no right of reconversion to be performed. The most that has been done in some cases of Jews returning to Judaism is that a right of purification, a tara, which is to be explicitly differentiated from the right of conversion, is to be performed. That might well be for psychological reasons and for strictly theological reasons to ease the guilt a former apostate intensely feels. As a rabbi, I've dealt with this type of situation personally. To be sure, politically speaking, the apostate did leave the extant Jewish community. But metaphysically speaking, a Jew can only leave the Jewish people when permanently expelled from the community of Israel in the world to come. In this world, though, an apostate is only AWOL, absent without official leave. But in fact, all that means is that Jews do not give any apostate a farewell party. Rather, Jews remain, Jews remind apostates of their right to return to the Jewish people in Judaism, no questions asked, as it were. Apostates may have gone out the front door and locked it behind themselves, but the back door always remains unlocked for them. I myself pray for their return every day. For more psychological than perhaps political reasons, it seems the Jewish community did not want to hold prisoner, as it were, anyone who did not want to be there in good faith. And in a more strictly theological vein, just as the covenant between God and Israel did not become fully effective until the Jewish people voluntarily reaccepted it in the exile and during the days of the Second Temple, so is the covenant between God and individual Jews not fully effective unless an individual Jew wants to be in the covenant under no external duress. That is why Jews have welcomed willing converts to Judaism in a way they have not detained those wanting to depart from Judaism. Furthermore, whereas willing converts are a good influence on the Jews by reminding them that Judaism is too good to ever be taken for granted, unwilling Jews, whose rebellion extends to the far point of apostasy, are a bad influence on the Jews by showing them that Judaism is an unwanted burden, if not a curse. But the de facto right, recognition of the right to radically leave Judaism does not entail any communal duty or even any communal permission to approve of those who have chosen to exercise that right. Error does have rights in the political sense, but error cannot be committed without ultimate with, cannot be committed with ultimate impunity. The judgment of apostates and their claims in is in essence the business of God alone, because in essence apostasy is really not about this world, which is the only world which and in which humans can judge other humans. Seven and final section: the theological question of freedom. 
If there is religious liberty within a religious tradition like Judaism, then why have so many modern Jews departed from any real connection to God's covenant with Israel and its Torah? Do not most of them claim that the rejection of the Torah is due to their quest for a greater liberty of the, the greater liberty of the world? That explains why modern Jews rarely leave Judaism for another religion. In fact, they often insist that Christianity, or Islam, is just as authoritarian as is their ancestral Judaism. Of course, traditional Jews like myself attribute this departure for secularism to be a desire for religious and moral license, and that our secularist brothers and sisters do not understand that true liberty is never an end in itself, but is always for the sake of what always transcends its exercise. But perhaps there's another answer to the charge that Judaism limits one's freedom. One's freedom. And the answer is metaphysical. It is from the most theoretical aspect of theology. In fact, I think that actually the only way one can do theology, metaphysics in the classical sense today is in a theological context. And it is somewhat different from the more political or practical side of theology that I've been making use of in this lecture. Being metaphysical, I don't suspect it will make much, have much of a political, it will make much of a political difference in the world. That notwithstanding, it might have some theological cogency for those who seek theological cogency. Liberty or freedom is usually measured by the number of options available to it. More options, more freedom. Less options, less freedom. But on that score, license wins because its range of options is greatest. That is why this libertarian, often hedonistic view of life, any restraint of one's range of options might be a political necessity, but it is not an existential desideratum. However, liberty or freedom can also be measured by the depth of the options offered. The deeper the options, the greater the freedom to choose one or the other. The more shallow the options, the more shallow the freedom to choose one or the other. Thus, philosophy offers more freedom of choice than does politics because, as we have seen, philosophy offers us the choice of justice or injustice whereas politics only offers us the choice of good or bad tactics. So on that score, theology offers us the most freedom of choice possible in this world because it offers us the deepest choice possible. What is that choice? It's the choice between the worship of God and the worship of what is not God. Who is not God? It is ourselves when we set ourselves up to be God's equal. The serpent's offer to the first man and the first woman is the offer of original sin. As it says in Genesis 3.5, you shall be like God, the serpent tells the man and the woman. You shall be like God. But if humans are God's equal, then God is no longer God. God is no longer the first and the last. And besides me, me baladai, there is no God, Isaiah 44.6. God can tolerate an other not opposed to his kingship. After all, God created a world apart from himself to be king over it. But could God tolerate an equal whose very assertion of his or her equality would destroy God's kingship? Thus Nietzsche was right about atheism being deicide. Unlike the choice between tactics that politics gives us, and unlike the choice between principles that philosophy gives us, this theological choice is the deepest and the most direct choice possible for humans. We make it every time we are confronted by God's direct commandments. With full consciousness of what this choice involves, it brings us directly before God. No greater liberty could possibly be known. Furthermore, the alternatives in philosophy and, and in politics are between something positive and its privation. Justice or injustice? Good tactics or bad tactics? The theological alternative, though, is between God and his negating rival. The theological choice, then, is between two real opposing alternatives. 
to alternatives where one alternative is not simply abstractly inferred from the other. When we exercise this liberty, we are in a better position to appreciate that the philosophical choice of justice or injustice is most reasonably made by those who know what is greater than this worldly justice and therefore do not make unreasonable demands for it nor despair of making those demands at all. And we are in a better position to understand for whom we make the political claim to religious liberty and that all the toil involved in making that claim is a very small price to pay for what we receive and will receive from the ultimate object of that claim of all claims made in this world. Surely the greatness of our claim to religious liberty in this world is best appreciated from a theological perspective. Thank you. Thank you very much. We have time for questions. Perhaps to get started, I should uh, raise a question to some degree. When, when pursuing the theological claim relative to religious liberty, you focus no. on a specific tradition of, mm -hmm. of Judaism. Mm -hmm. um, Obviously, the story would be somewhat different depending on which particular tradition one focuses on. But how generalizable uh, could that theological claim be? How many traditions um, uh, can you think you can reasonably appeal uh, to, to make these kinds of claims? Or is this something particular to Judaism and the specific religious traditions that ultimately grow out of it? No, I mean, I mean, I mean the, the, the reason that I spoke of, of Jews very clearly theologically uh, is that I cannot possibly speak in the first person about anybody's tradition other than my own. Uh, for me to make theological claims for Christianity would be totally inappropriate. Nonetheless, I know a little bit about Christianity, and I've been in conversation with Christian thinkers most of my life, and I would venture to say that, you know, all things being umatatis mutandis, uh, differences to be sure, that I would venture to say I wouldn't be surprised. I couldn't do it myself, obviously, because that would be disingenuous. But I wouldn't be a bit surprised if a Christian thinker couldn't have made roughly the same arguments I could, uh, coming out of the Christian uh, tradition, uh, which, by the way, is no accident, because both the Jewish and tradition, Christian traditions come out of the same book, the Hebrew Bible, uh, and all claims have to be related back there, too. So I wouldn't be uh, a bit surprised. As for Islam, it's interesting. I... I think the, the jury is out in terms of, I just came back from the American Academy of Religion where we had a, a session on, on, on Judaism and Islam. Uh, there are clearly Muslim thinkers who would like to find some of these notions of, of liberty in, the, in their tradition, and, I, 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 and I, I, I wish them well, but they're struggling with it. But then again, one has to understand that Jews and Christians have come through the Enlightenment uh, intact. We weren't, we weren't supposed to survive, but we did. And, but like Jacob, limping, I mean, we wrestled with the angel of Esau, and we were limping, but we're still here, you know, and, uh, uh, and therefore, uh, Islam is, in the, is, is in, the, in the position in the political events in the world that, you know, brought this to the fore, um, that to enter the conversation, uh, they're, they're coming, you know, from a few centuries before, and I don't say that in any pejorative sense, but I mean, this happens to, to be the case. But as I say, in terms of, 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 uh, of Christianity, uh, yeah, I think that this could, you know, well be the case. And if you'll notice that at certain key points in the paper, I try to make it more intelligible to a general audience, I purposely chose terms that are, you know, like consensus fidelium, 
uh, from Christian theology. Um, so that, that would be the case. But, but here again, I think that it's important that theology distinguish itself from kind of a generalized philosophy of religion. And theology make its claims in terms of its own tradition rather than talking in some kind of abstract entity called religion because I think religion is like a, a Wittgensteinian family resemblance. I don't think that there's kind of a, an essential religion of which there are branch offices, you know, the Christian one, the Islamic one, the Jewish one, uh, but rather there are overlappings and what have you. In the case of Judaism and Christianity, the overlapping is not only that historically we've been involved, because we've, we've been involved with Muslims as well, but we share, at least partially, a common revelation uh, and a common book. So, as I say, I think that that would be the, um, uh, uh, you know, that, that would be very much uh, the case, but 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 here here again, it's always a situation. I, I remember to, to see Professor George here uh, in, in terms of natural law. A number of years ago, the uh, well-known Australian uh, jurisprudent uh, Julia Stone uh, wrote an article about uh, Jew, Jewish views of very uh, Jewish philosophies of law, as it were. And uh, I must admit, I was uh, I could understand it. He hadn't I'd read my material very carefully because uh, even though some of my best friends are Thomas, I'm. Uh, my position is not a philosophically even a mystic position, but he said, "Well, this uh, young—I was a young man at the time. I, uh, I'm not a young man anymore. But uh, this young man, Novak, uh, he said, who mentions natural law. And you remember, Jews been talking about natural law. He said, uh, it's obviously uh, been—you uh, know—he's he's clearly adopting a Thomistic line. I, ch I checked his CV, got his PhD at Georgetown, uh, and this sort of thing, and and, and it's kind of regarded me as some kind of uh, dupe or something, you know, of, of somebody else's philosophy or theology. But anyway, to, to conclude this too long answer, uh, yes, this definitely could be the case, and uh, uh, I know it could be the case, but it's the case is not for me to make uh, any more than it's for a Christian to make a, a Jewish case, even though they're Christians and know a lot about Judaism. Yeah. No, no, I, I, you're right. I, uh, I'm happy to clarify that. Um, what I meant by following the commandments is as follows. It's, it's, it's quantitative. In other words, there are more commandments that one can keep in the land of Israel than one can keep legitimately. I mean, there are certain things that can only be done in the land of Israel. It's not that the Jews in the, outside of Israel are picking and choosing. There are certain conditions. Now, even there, they can't do the commandments pertaining to the temple because the temple is destroyed. And most Jews believe it will only come back with the, uh, you know, with the Messiah. Uh, so therefore, well, what it means is that, uh, and this, is, this was argued even in biblical times, it does not mean that Jews living in the land of Israel therefore have the Torah and those outside do not. Um, uh, but rather there is a, a simply a quantitative difference in terms of what they um, uh, can observe. But the commitment, of course, is to the entire Torah. Uh, nonetheless, of all the 613 commandments, a number of them are not, do not apply at the present time, but that doesn't mean that they've been abrogated, it's just that the conditions for their observance are presently not available. But part of Jewish liturgy is to pray that those conditions be returned so that Jews can keep the full commandments of the, uh, of the Torah. So therefore, the choice is, the choice is, you know, to be in the sense of, yes, for God and his Torah or against God and his Torah, that's the choice in general, and that is the existential choice, but quantitatively there are, are certain differences there.
But I, so, so, I, so I, I hope that resolves that seeming contradiction. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, it says in Ecclesiastes, there's nobody on earth who keeps all of the commandments of the Torah. Practically, what it means is it's, it's a commitment to the authority of the Torah so that when I don't keep the commandments, I'm aware that I've sinned. As opposed to saying, well, I only keep what you know, I want to keep. It's a big difference. Uh, no, they're not apostate. Apostate means joining another community. So they're not an apostate. Uh, the status of, uh, of that person, it's debated in the sources. In other words, if one keeps a commandment, but not for the reason that it's commanded by God. One keeps a commandment because, you know, it seems appealing, uh, cultural reasons, ethnic reasons, or whatever. Um, yes, to a certain extent, one could say they really have not fulfilled a commandment of God. On the other hand, the... Um, uh, tradition is such that it was always felt that we should encourage Jews to keep commandments for whatever reason, because even if they're keeping them for the wrong reason, getting used to keeping them, they'll eventually discover the right uh, uh, reason. So that is uh, uh, the case. I, 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 I remember uh, just uh, several years ago there was a, um, um, a symposium at, at the University of Chicago uh, dealing with the book Kaddish by Leon Wieseltier, the literary editor of the, of the New Republic, somebody who grew up in a very traditional Jewish background, strayed from it, and seems to be moving back into the Jewish tradition. And uh, on the panel was uh, the Archbishop of Chicago, uh, uh, Francis Cardinal George, uh, also was uh, very philosophically well-trained, and he just raised the question, and he, you know, in a nice sort of way, he said to Leon Wieseltier, he said, well, I know what the people that you wrote about in this book believed. What do you believe? Uh, do you really believe this? And... Uh, yeah, Wieseltier became a little flustered and, uh, and uh, kind of said, well, you know, I, I don't have to tell you and <laughs> this sort of thing. And, uh, and I tried to save uh, Leon, because I'm a, a friend of Leon's, and I think he's actually moving in the right direction uh, slowly. Uh, but, uh, but, but okay, you know. Uh, we, we, we believe in a, in a long-suffering God, you know. <laughs> and I simply said to God, there's a wonderful Talmudic statement that a person should observe the commandments of the Torah, even for the wrong reason, is In other words, for the wrong reason, eventually. And that's true. You know, children will do things, uh, you know, will, will do their homework because, you know, for the, so they can get watch television the next night or they'll get candy. And eventually, we, we hope that they reach a point where they appreciate learning for itself. So it's like the Jews at Mount Sinai. Uh, they had to be kind of, you know, forced into it even for all kinds of reasons that are questionable. Uh, eventually, people grow up. Yes, uh, Professor George. <laughs> yeah. Oh, by the way, I mentioned him in the. Uh, uh, I, 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 oh, 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 okay, okay, all right. Mr. Shane. Yeah. 
well, that's uh, yeah. I I I I must admit um, that uh, when that was a possibility, uh, at least some of us were thinking that uh, this would create problems. That <laughs> the likes of which, uh, you know. Uh, but I mean, the the, the 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 fact is, is that, that Jean Paul Lestage uh, is a Jew, uh, who, not from his perspective, but from our perspective, has joined another uh, religious community, and uh, it would be interesting in terms of the um, uh, problems it would raise. I, I, I dare say that I think it would be inappropriate if, let's say, he'd been made pope for the Jewish community to hold a celebration uh, like we did when Louis D. Brandeis was the first Jew appointed to the Supreme Court. I mean, I think, you know, that would be a little uh, much. And, and it's very interesting, and, and, it, 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 and I'll, I'll push the question a little bit because this came out when Edith Stein was canonized. Uh, the question of Edith Stein being canonized, and uh, I mean, I, 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 I've written on this, and it's coming out in, 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 in the chapter in a book of mine called Talking with Christians. It's going to be out this spring. And the question with Edith Stein was the members of her immediate family, some of them went to her when she was beatified in Cologne, and some did not. Interesting um, question uh, uh, there. But um, as I say, you know, this, this, you know, th this would very much uh, uh, be the case, even though I must admit that in the one conversation that I had with uh, Cardinal Stichet, uh, he's very aware of, of the fact of why he is so problematic as a person, even though actually Jews Creamy has very good relations with him, uh, because of Sam. He, he, he understands that. And uh, so, um, um, uh, you know, that just in a kind of a, a practical matter, um, can you suggest some other names on the short list? <laughs> and the Pope should live and be well, you know, I mean, uh, uh, but that would have created a problem. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, they did want to go. On the one hand, they're complaining about slavery. Uh, on the other hand, they go out in the desert, worship the golden calf, uh, complain about the catering. Uh, you know, the manna, uh, I, I mean, you know, how many you know, how many manna burgers can you eat, uh, uh, you know, in uh, one week and, and, and whatever. But, I mean, this, this is the case. But, but it's interesting. It goes back to Jeremiah. And interesting, the, the passage in Jeremiah, the 31st chapter, is where Jeremiah speaks of the new covenant, the Brit Hadashah where God will write the Torah on their hearts. Uh, and meaning that the people will keep it from internal motivations rather than external uh, duress. Uh, so, I mean, that is an understanding. But, but what I tried to do at that point was to show that it's philosophical analysis from both Aristotle and Kant. I mean, Aristotle's saying that you can't teach moral theory to somebody who has no moral experience. And obviously that moral experience was not gained freely. It's somebody living some disciplined kind of life. Uh, and uh, uh, I mean, my, my wife is, is, is a high school teacher. And she says that, I mean, children who come from homes where clearly there seems to be no moral discipline. Uh, it's more discipline in school is, is unintelligible. Uh, and they're supposed to, you know, be approaching adulthood. Poor kids. Uh, I'm coming from that type of, of a background. So, I mean, therefore, it becomes the question is, 
that all of our moral experience was originally in a way forced upon us. Uh, and then we reach a certain point where we can either choose it uh, 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 or, 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 or not. And, uh, and that was the case. And that, as the Talmud sees it, is when the people are in exile. Because when the people are in exile, there are real life options. They're not in a wilderness, you know, uh, where there's nothing else but God's word or else. And there it becomes a more uh, mature kind of national uh, choice. So that uh, now there were other strands of the tradition that said, you know, the people even at Sinai accepted willingly and, and, and this sort of thing. But, but as I say, the passage from Jeremiah is, is, is instructive, and especially the Talmudic legend of God you know, holding the mountain uh, 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 over, the, over their heads. But, but de facto, of course, the way that translates into practice is that the community really I mean, did not want people living in the community who didn't want to be there. Uh, even though they told them that uh, that uh, they could always return, and that's very similar to uh, Christian notions of excommunication. And, uh, you know, I've just discussed it with Christian theologians. I mean, baptism is indelible. Uh, a person who's you know out, out of communion with the church or whatever can can repent and can be taken back. And uh, in my neighborhood in Toronto, on Avenue Road up the street, is is, a, is the Catholic parish Saint Margaret of Scotland, and uh, they have a, a wonderful sign: Catholics, you can always come home. I suggested to the rabbi of my synagogue he should put a sign in front of us. You Jews, you can always come. Uh, he's thinking about it, but, uh, uh, but 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 nonetheless, I thought that that would now clearly that reflects very similar notions of actually chosenness, which is a difference with Islam. See, Islam, Jews and Christians regard themselves as chosen people. God elected a community, uh, and whereas Muslims have much more of a notion that Islam is a group of people of like-minded believers who kind of come together. Uh, based upon their uh, acceptance, the prophet has come and brought the message, and people decide whether they, uh, you know, want to want to accept it uh, or not, and come together that way. Very, very different uh, uh, notions there. That's why you can be expelled from the ummah, whereas you cannot be totally, at least in this world, expelled from either the Jewish people or or, or, or the Catholic Church, as I understand it. Yeah. I suppose so. I mean, uh, that would be the, the, the problem. There is as follows: um, the problem is that if one believes in a historical revelation, uh, however imperfect it is, because it's given to imperfect people, um, one can directly refer to divine commandment in a way that I don't think that one can uh, uh, intelligently. In, in, other words, in the last lecture, I tried to show that the notion of, I tried to do a philosophical analysis of the line, you know, endowed by the creator with certain inalienable rights. That I think that even philosophy can deal with a certain experience of being commanded. Uh, uh, but to say that this actually was the voice of God or the commandment of God received at a certain point in time, I, I think is pressing it too far. And I think that at most what philosophy can do it morally is to postulate a commanding God, assume, but not indicate that it has a direct connection. And I think that the reason that uh, philosophy, uh, as, as wonderful as it is, and uh, something you know many religious people like something engage in, the reason that philosophy is necessary but not sufficient is that philosophy doesn't give one that direct connection to God uh, that is given by traditions based upon revelation. Uh, but of course, 
all of our decisions based on Revelation could be wrong. In the Jewish tradition, Elijah might come before the Messiah and tell all of the rabbis that 99% of what they ruled was wrong. Their answer to Elijah would be, we did the best we could. Uh, uh, and that is, is, is really kind of a, uh, um, uh, a, a good answer. I think, however, deep down, and there's, there's a tendency among certain interpreters in Judaism, uh, of a more liberal variety, to argue that because all of these decisions are really tentative, waiting kind of eschatological approval, therefore Jewish moral and legal theory doesn't deal with the question of truth. There's no such thing as moral truth at all, and I think that's a mistake. Uh, because a judgment is made because of what I think is true. It might turn out not to be true, but certainly I've made it because I think I'm affirming something that's true, not just uh, an arbitrary kind of uh, stab in the dark. Well, that, you know, that, 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 that could very well uh, be the case, but the problem uh, is that people who base their connection to God on inner feeling, their own personal experience, what do we say to the person whose inner experience tells them to do what we think are horrendous kind of things? Whereas, whereas, if somebody is committed to a historical revelation, I mean, even somebody like uh, Osama bin Laden, who seems to be committed, I mean, then Muslim scholars, if they're not afraid of being assassinated, uh, can employ that this is a total distortion of Islamic revelation. Uh, and say so just as uh, 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 Jews could say to Christians that if you're, you're forcing us to convert at certain points to the Crusaders, this is contrary to your own teaching, and, and, and the church very quickly uh, cleaned that up. So by the Second and Third Crusade, there was very little of this forced conversion. Uh, and it's the same thing. People can uh, say to Jews in terms of certain practices, let's say in, in Israel or whatever, uh, that this is contrary to uh, the Jewish tradition. You can hold them up to something that has been written down. So therefore, that's, that's how I would uh, make the distinction. But certainly, I think uh, traditions have a notion of spirituality that there is a role for individual inspiration or whatever, uh, but it's like conscience, it's conscientia, it's knowing with, it's internalizing, not de novo, as it were, creating or think that, you, that you, you've gotten some brand new revelation. Because you, if you really think you've gotten a brand new revelation, then you better start a new religion. And uh, I mean, so there are a few people in history who did that, but it uh, doesn't happen very often. Yeah. Well, I mean, here again, I mean, I, I could take the easy out and say, you know, I can't, uh, that's kind of a Christian theological judgment, but since you've asked me to do it, and uh, uh, I, I, I will. Uh, let's put it this way. Um, if you look at the, at, at the claims that Jesus makes in the New Testament, or they made his name, but made Jesus' name, there's not one of them that is not based upon the Old Testament. It's one of them. 
Now, therefore, and if, at least Jesus himself says in the gospel, I've only sent to the lost tribes of Israel. Uh, then the claims that he's making, made are by people who are already living under the yoke of the law, which initially was forced upon them, hopefully, which they now uh, accept. And those were the claims that he would make. And, and the best example of that uh, is if you look at his dialogues in the Gospels with other Jews. The Sadducees get a one-line put down. The Zealots get a one-line put down. But the Pharisees, the whole point of the intensity of the debate with the Pharisees is that Jesus is engaged in inner Pharisaic disputes. That's why they get real answers as opposed to one-liners. Uh, now, in that sense, they are both appealing to the same source. So I, I would say that, that the claims of Jesus uh, made uh, are not totally original claims, by, because if they were totally original claims, then you fall into a Marcion night type uh, notion that Jesus is really speaking in the name of a God who did not speak to Israel uh, at Sinai. So in that sense, I think that, um, uh, that to indicate that, yes, Jesus doesn't force it on people, uh, to be sure, uh, but one could look upon, uh, from a Christian perspective, is that what's, what Jesus is doing is very similar to what the rabbis were doing. That is asking the people basically to re-accept voluntarily uh, the rule of God, in his case being messianic, in their case being pre-Messianic, or, or that sort of thing. And that is, 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 is what the, um, uh, the, the great debate is about. Now, I think that in terms of, of, of Jews and Christians in the world, I think that there is no way, I think historically, it was disastrous when Jews and Christians attempted to argue each other into the other one's faith by either philosophical arguments, exegetical arguments, or political arguments, you know, look who has more power, and, and that sort of thing. But as I say, I, I, I think that the interesting thing is that one could say, and this is, sounds wild, but I think I can actually prove it to a certain extent, or at least demonstrate it. One could say that the New Testament to Christians functions remarkably similar to the way the Talmud functions for Jews. It is a, an elaborate midrash, an elaborate elaboration, elaborate uh, you know, extension, development, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but which uses, which is not derived directly from uh, the Hebrew Bible. It's much more than just literal derivation. But it is certainly, the Hebrew Bible certainly grounds it. Uh, and uh, and, and if, when Christians don't see that, then you have the first heresy that the church today, which is the heresy of Marcion, which basically cut off, wanted to cut off Christians from the God of Israel and from the Torah. Uh, so in that way, I would, you know, indicate that, you know, uh, that would very much uh, be the case. Now, in practice, it translated in interesting ways, because, for example, you read Acts 15 in the New Testament, the whole question, the debate between the Church of James of Jerusalem and, the church, and, and, and ultimately Paul's position, was that the Church of Jerusalem indicated that in order for Christians to be Christians, Gentiles to become Christians, they had to become Jews first. It was like becoming you know, a citizen of the United States before you can become a citizen of uh, New Jersey, as it were. I mean, it was just a homely example. Um, so I think that those are uh, you know, very much factors there that, that the free offer presupposes that to a certain extent uh, this was forced. And indeed, if you look at Paul on the road to Damascus, it seems to be that he was overwhelmed. Uh, uh, 
Uh, he doesn't seem like the people at, at Mount Sinai. It doesn't mean people, you know, well, think about it and come back next Tuesday and uh, uh, if you can think of some reasons, pro, pro and con. Uh, however, eventually there does have to be that point where people do. I mean, adolescents have that problem all the time of whether they are going to continue, you know, with their ancestral, you know, what their parents have, have, have taught them uh, or, uh, or whatever. And uh, uh, even people who've rebelled against their childhood religion usually appreciate at least that they were given a they had something to choose against, even, as opposed to people who were raised so amorphously that, uh, uh, as G.K. Chesterton once put it, he said, people who've been raised, or who, people who in the, in the beginning uh, believed in nothing frequently wind up believing in anything. Uh, as opposed to if you believe in something, even if you rebel against it, you still uh, have something to measure it against and that you've made your free choice. And I think that the Jewish tradition, at least de facto, says about Jews who've made that choice that... Uh, we're not going to send a posse after you. Uh, we hope you'll come back. We're not going to send a posse after you. And uh, at least as a, in the political realm, we can respect that. I mean, uh, uh, and not try by power politics or whatever to uh, you know, send deprogrammers after people, you know, the, the type of things that are, uh, that, that are done. Uh, yeah. One last Yeah. Uh, I mean, classical metaphysics, I, I'm not talking about the type of metaphysics that, um, that maybe is done, or at least was done by one very prominent member of the philosophy department here at Princeton. You know, it talks about alternative worlds and, and, and this sort of thing. That seems to be, to me, more paraphysical than metaphysical. That is beyond the physical. But it seems to me that, at least after Kant, and I know that, obviously, Thomas would disagree with me, uh, that after Kant, that talk of God talk uh, in any substantial sense, uh, really only makes sense in the context of a language game called theology, in the use of the Wittgensteinian term. Uh, and that the, therefore that is uh, where one can talk about such questions of, of choices. God makes choices, human beings make. Uh, to attempt to discuss that outside of a text that has some revealed status, I think is somewhat questionable. And that's why in the, in the, in, in the second lecture, I argued very vociferously against natural theology uh, and that natural theology need not be the foundation of natural law. Natural theology understood in, in, in a cosmic sense. In other words, my disagreement, let's say, with, with Karl Barth is that Karl Barth was opposed to natural theology and therefore thought that without natural theology, no natural law. Uh, I think that, uh, that he was basically traumatized by the Jewish philosopher Hermann Kohn, whose student he was. By, by, by thinking that. But I, but, but I think that very much in, in, in that situation, that God talk requires the context of historical tradition in, in, in a way that something like Alistair McIntyre would talk about, that you have to talk basically within, within a tradition. Well, that concludes uh, this year's test lectures. Uh, thank you very much for coming. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you. I would welcome you to a reception right outside. <laughs>